Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is November 21st, 2011, and my guest is Simon Johnson, the Ronald A. Kurtz Professor of Entrepreneurship at MIT Sloan School of Management. He blogs at Baseline Scenario with James Kwok, and he and Kwok are the authors of 13 Bankers, The Wall Street Takeover, and The Next Financial Meltdown. Simon, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. Uh, our topic for today is the financial crisis in your book, 13 Bankers. Let's set the stage. What changed in the last three decades or so in the relationship between the American economy and the financial sector? Because the financial sector recently before the crisis and the run-up to the crisis played a very different role in the economy than it had before. What was different? Well, I, that, that's, I think, exactly the, the right way to come at this issue. For 150 or so years in the development of the American Republic and the creation of the greatest industrial power the world's ever seen, finance was not particularly a critical sector. We certainly didn't rely on big banks. And after the Great Depression, banking was quite tightly regulated in, in, the, in the United States. I, I think it, it played a perfectly healthy role, for example, in financing entrepreneurs, um, creating venture capital um, sector, and so on and so forth. But from the 1970s, it really changed dramatically because the banks became bigger, they were able to take on more risk, and eventually they were able to blow themselves up at, at great cost to society. Their profits increased dramatically uh, over that time period. Their profits as a share of, of the economy, right? Their their role in uh, as an employer also increased, although not quite as dramatically. Why did that change? What is your what do you think we understand about that transformation? And certainly, as you point out, banking was a, a steady, important part of the American economy. Uh, before this period, but something changed dramatically in the, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and, and 2000s. Why did that happen? Well, I, I think the, uh, the the best symbol of what changed was in the early 2000s when uh, banking profits were 40%, 40% of total corporate sector profits. And that um, was, was obviously a misstatement because um, subsequently they ran up big losses and you don't go back and 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 reduce that their profits uh, in the national accounts, taking that into account. But the, the big issue is they're able to take on risks. So you take a lot of risks now. You show the upside. You pay yourself a lot of money, and then the downside gets shoved onto the taxpayer one one way or another. So it's the ability of the financial sector to take. I mean, obviously, you need finance to take risk. You need finance to be willing to provide equity investments and sometimes provide debt type investments to entrepreneurs and to established businesses. That's fine, but the financial sector went way beyond that in the past couple of decades. They developed an ability to take risk at, at the macroeconomic scale and, and risks that really have no counterpart in terms of benefits for the economy. We're not getting better allocation of capital out of a lot of the craziness. Looks that worse. Guys into. Looks a lot worse, actually. <laughs> well, it looks right now it looks terrible. Of course, we're in a or trying to come out of a pretty deep recession, so it, it's it's hard to be sure. But it, you can't make the case, I think. That the allocation of capital improved um, in the 2000s or the 1990s compared to where it was in the 50s and 60s. Yeah, when I look at that, I always point out that 
putting trillions of dollars into housing is probably not the most productive use of scarce capital. Um, but yeah. as you say, it's hard to say. But um, it's, it's hard to say. And I, and I personally, I try to take a pretty agnostic view. If market, if genuine markets allocate capital one way or another, I, I feel that's sort of their business, and I'm happy with the market outcome. If it's a, a matter of government subsidies pushing capital towards housing, which is obviously what happened in part, and and then the private sector gets into this um, uh, rise to cycle with massive leverage and, and is excessive risk taking for private benefit, then, then we have a problem. The two views of this expansion of the financial sector, one view is that, well, they really do mostly uh, allocate capital wisely and, and we should trust what they do because they have, they have profit incentives. The other view was at the time, uh, over this time period, well, they don't do anything. They don't make anything. All they do is is speculate and push pieces of paper around. And I have to confess that I was always on the side that said, well, you know, that they're looking out for their profits. And of course, if that's what the market signal says to do, that's going to be okay. What I neglected was the loss side that we insulated the financial sector from. And that is clearly part of the problem. Absolutely, a huge part of the problem. I, I think of myself uh, really as a follower of George Stigler. So I, I, I don't know how you say that, Stiglerian perhaps? Yeah. So uh, Stigler's point was that when you regulate industries, uh, the industry will turn around and capture the regulators. And, and, and you know, in, in um, utility pricing, you'll get um, inefficiencies of various kinds, for example. But, but for banking, which wasn't Stigler's focus because banking wasn't a big issue when, when, when he was uh, do, doing his work, in, in banking, it's much worse. In banking, the banks could turn around, capture the regulations, Allow, get themselves permission to take on all kinds of crazy risks. They make this great private benefits. Actually, it seems it was, in this case, it was mostly for the management, not even so much for the shareholders. But clearly, the shareholders thought they were going to get a good ride. And some of them did if they got out early enough, because there was a lot of volatility for them to take advantage of if they t- did the timing right. Good point. So, share, that's right. Shareholder calculations always have to take that into account. But if you look at buy and hold shareholders of the past 10 or 20 years in banking, in, to the big banks, they've not done particularly well at a time when the people who built up those big banks and ran them as, as their growing empires did incredibly well on a, on a, on a, on a cash basis. Yeah, the, the, uh, the regulatory capture, it's an interesting example in this particular case that I think has been a little bit misunderstood. Part of it, I think, hasn't been detailed very well, and I think you do the best job that I've seen in 13 Bankers, and we're going we're gonna to come back to that, that, that capture and deregulation that helped banking. Um, but I think the weird part about this is that on paper, it didn't look very much like capture because, quote, all the bankers got the permission to do was to be highly leveraged on very safe things, and that seems to be uh, okay. If you said on paper – in the abstract, well, should banks be allowed to borrow more to use less capital in areas where they're investing in safe things? You say, well, that makes sense. And of course, that was the basis for Basel one and two was to say, well, if you're investing in AAA, which is safe, then it's okay. But what we did, of course, what, what, what was neglected was the ability of the financial sector to create AAA. At the time, you know, AAA was scarce. So they said, we'll fix that. If that's the thing that we are able to run wild on, okay, fine. And I view this as a really uh, depressing bit of entrepreneurship on the part of financials of the financial sector. And again, those of us, I think, who are market-oriented defended that wrongly at the time by saying, well, this is innovation. This is giving people more access to housing. Uh, again, we didn't realize that the downside risks were being uh, protected for, for the banks, and therefore they were acting very, very recklessly. 
I think, that, I think that's it. You just described one of the most sophisticated regulatory capture schemes in the history of humankind. Not, I'm not saying there was a conspiracy. I'm not saying they, ne- they set out to do it, but that is the way in which, I don't know, competition pressed them forward, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and Basel, in my view, is absolutely part of the problem. Because if you take the position that somebody can tell you what's risk-free, and I don't care if it's a regulator or a banker or an academic, I don't believe them. No and, and uh, you know, your point about manufacturing risk-free assets, of course, correct uh, in the U.S. context. But look at Europe today. Yeah. It's AAA, supposedly formerly yeah. known as AAA sovereign debt that is the heart of the problem there. And I think that, that I think, by the way, that a lot of our problems over the past over the past few years may end up in the history books as as the being written as the forerunner or the lead up to the really big crisis, which is the European sovereign debt crisis, because we've never seen a, a crisis on this scale for quote unquote safe debt, yeah, not, not it, in the modern period. Yeah, it's. Um, I think your point is the right point. There's no such thing as safe debt, and I think. I think everybody who plays in this world understands it. They they may forget it from time to time, and we may reduce their incentives to remember it. But everybody understands there's no such thing as a risk-free asset. And so this there was sort of this illusion fostered by political and economic forces that, that these were safe things. It's not that they were safe things to invest in. That That's a mistake, and if you turns out to be wrong, you, you pay a price, you lose your money. The challenge, the real problem is, is that they were safe things to invest in with a lot of borrowed money rather than one's own capital. If you risk your own capital and you lose it, you lose, and you have a bad quarter or a bad year. Maybe you're wiped out. The problem we're dealing with now, to me, is that we allowed, uh, we encouraged the use of of enormous amounts of debt, of leverage to finance this, which is what is going to create the um, perhaps the, the the mother of all storms. Absolutely. And of course, it's not just leverage, it's the scale. So we might distinguish between what you could call the John Corzine problem and the Chuck Prince problem. John Corzine, of course, bet MF Global on a particular view of sovereign debt being safer than the current market uh, pricing uh, would suggest. And MF Global failed. $40 billion balance sheet, who cares? I, I, I looked quite carefully around the world. You can see barely a ripple from that failure. Chuck Prince, on the other hand, famously bet massively on mortgage-backed securities and said, you've got to keep dancing as long as the music's playing. Uh, the moment he said that, I believe the music had already stopped. Yes, it had. He's at, he was <laughs> um, at City, right? I'm sorry. Yeah, he, no, he was at City. He was the head of City. And that was a $2.5 trillion balance sheet that went down and, and was saved by, by the U.S. taxpayer on, on incredibly, ridiculously uh, generous, uh, generous terms. So I don't know if people – people do make mistakes sometimes. And, and people get carried away, and there's plenty of hubris that you meet in and around Wall Street. Yeah. That's fine. But why would I want one guy or a small set of guys to control $2.5 trillion balance sheet or bigger in the future? Because these guys are getting bigger, and they want to get bigger, and they want to get more global. Why would I want a few people to be able to bring down a big chunk of the economy like that and have massive spillover damage? Yeah. Well, we're going to come back to what might be uh, done about that. But before we do that, I want to go back to the history lesson because, again, I think – uh, the right, and this would include uh, people like myself. I'm not on the right, but I'm a, a free market type, so people put me on the right. You know, they the the right's very uh, skeptical about this idea that deregulation is the source of the problem, and they say, "Well, you know, what do you, what deregulation are you talking about? The financial sector is one of the most highly regulated industries in the American economy, which is true. But what what can you point to? And one of the things people point to is Graham Leach Bliley, which is a very hard thing to say, uh, but it's the repeal of Glass-Steagall, uh, which is how it's usually described because it's a little easier to say. Uh, was that important? And I think not so, a little bit, 
But I think what is more important are some of the subtler things that you highlight in the book. So talk about the deregulation and what, what was important that allowed uh, the Wall Street uh, and investment banks to grow so large. Well, I think there was a process of, of – you could call it deregulation or you could say changing nature of regulation. The banks are still highly regulated, but they were regulated and have been throughout this process. But what they, the restrictions implicit in those regulations on large-scale risk-taking, those restrictions uh, receded. The um, end of Glass-Steagall is, is a symbol, um, but at that point, a lot of the restrictions on big bank holding companies have already gone away. And, and I would point rather at um, the failure or the reluctance to have a proper regulatory framework for derivatives, in, derivatives in particular traded on um, on open markets, not over the counter. I think that's very important. But even, even, even bigger than that was the decision during the Bush administration by the SEC to allow investment banks to massively increase their leverage uh, based on just their own uh, internal assessments of what kind of risk they were taking. You look back and, 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 you know, in terms of the big, big mistakes in financial history, that's got to be in the top ten. And then you've got uh, just the, the, the lack of um, – I don't know what you want to call it again. You're right. It's hard. Sometimes it's deregulation. Sometimes it's just a cha- little bit of change here or there. But the whole phenomenon that allowed the uh, mortgage-backed security market to expand and my, and my favorite is um, – a very, uh, this is just a beautiful piece, piece of detective work you describe in the in the book that in 1991, which is 17 years before the crisis uh, uh, explodes, uh, Goldman Sachs lobbied to change I think three or four words in a piece of legislation related to the Federal Reserve, which was that the Federal Reserve could open its window – only to banks whose assets were based on commercial transactions, correct? Is that the yes. right way to phrase it? Describe right. what, what that would happen there. Well, Goldman Sachs wanted um, better, uh, more of a backstop, uh, ultimately, I guess, for, for itself. Um, and this is exactly the issue of, of downside risk. To what it, to, can you put the assets, if the assets fall in price, or any investment, can you put them onto someone? And, of course, in the modern economy, uh, where we run a fiat money system, the, any central bank is a very appealing um, place of last resort. Uh, Goldman made substantial progress then and, and later, but of course, they still needed uh, to, be, to convert to become a bank holding company in September um, 2008 in order to really be saved. And, and, and that's how they operate to, today, with a full backstop from the Fed. But, that, but in the absence of that 1991 wording change, that conversion would not have been sufficient. Is that correct? Well, that, that, that conversion to, to a bank holding company would not have been enough. Yeah, that's that's at least that's that's our interpretation. They they, they were very thoughtful and and prepared uh, long ago for for this kind of uh, eventuality. These are these are very smart people. Yeah, I, I, yeah. This view that says they were just you know stupid that they drank the Kool Aid, they believed all their models. I'm sure, as you pointed out earlier, there's a lot of hubris and overconfidence. Uh, but smart people tend to be aware that. Things do fall apart sometimes, and uh, my claim is that the incentives to be careful about that are what disappeared. I, I'm sure you're right. And if you go back to the the original debate around the founding of the Federal Reserve in the United States, which, as you know, we had relatively late compared to other countries, and we also had a, rel- a relatively open debate, unlike most countries that kind of stumbled into modern central banks. There were two views of, of, of the downside or, or the drawbacks of having a central bank. One was Nelson Aldrich representing, let's say, the business establishment, who said, well, this is going to create moral hazard problems for government. 
like, and that'll lead to inflation and so on. On the other side was the Pujo Committee and Louis Brandeis before he became um, a Supreme Court Justice, who said, well, there's also moral hazard this will create for the financial sector because the, the Wall Street barons or oligarchs uh, will be able to draw on this credit when they need it, and that will encourage them to take excessive risk. I have to say, looking back over 100 years, the experience of many countries, or, or looking at the experience of Europe today in the Eurozone, uh, there are many instances like that of uh, Greece that proved Nelson Aldrich was right, but there are other instances, most spectacularly recently that of Ireland, that proved Louis Brandeis is also right. Describe what's the the two, talk about Greece and Ireland and how those illustrate those those two views. Well, it's it's two sides of, or two types of moral hazard: not being careful, over borrowing, um, and of course the the problem is that the markets uh, in, either you could say encourage you or they don't warn you uh, that you're getting close to over borrowing. So Greece ran big budget deficits, uh, didn't do sensible fiscal adjustments. Um, it papered over the cracks. I mean, they were also, it seems, helped by some uh, deals that sort of concealed the true nature of their indebtedness until it was a bit, a bit too late. But that's the government overborrowing, and, and, and that's made possible by a financial sector that has incentives, for example, to hold "quote unquote" risk-free Greek debt, which of course is never risk-free. There's a second set of problems, though, uh, in Ireland, are almost entirely about the private sector. Um, the government was running a low. Uh, low deficit, or actually surpluses, um, debt GDP was low, was in the 20%, lower than most other industrialized countries. But three big banks increased their balance sheets, took a lot of risk, they became combined two times the Irish economy. They blew themselves up on bad commercial real estate, largely, and some residential real estate. Uh, that caused so much fiscal damage to the Irish government that they were forced to go get a loan from the, from the IMF and the European Commission. So Greece... The damage is done by governments gone wild. Ireland, the damage is done by bankers gone wild. It's the same difference, and, and that's the original Aldrich-Brandeis combination of points. When you have a central bank, when you have a backstop, when people think they're going to be bailed out, they're not careful. Yeah, right. Now, when we got to uh, – and I, I want to come – we'll come in a little bit, talk a little bit more about the, the rescue of creditors and bailouts, but – in 2008, we made the American policymakers made a series of decisions, um, which I view helped create the current mess we're in now. In the aftermath of that, and certainly raised the chances of future uh, crises. One of those decisions was to guarantee the assets of Bear Stearns to allow their creditors to lose zero, which sent a signal to markets, which was uh, keep going, keep dancing. Uh, there was a decision not to rescue Lehman, which has been interpreted, I think, somewhat incorrectly as the source of the problem. That, in turn, was followed by a series of relentless rescuing. AIG, uh, every AIG creditor uh, got to keep all their money, um, including uh, obviously some very large politically powerful uh, organizations. And then finally, the TARP. Uh, an injection of hundreds of billion, seven hundred so billion dollars into the balance sheets of banks uh, on the grounds of keeping uh, banks in, in health to avoid a, a crisis. The the TARP was kind of the punchline of that period. What might have been done differently? What other options should have been on the table? In all those cases, by the way, there was almost no debate, uh, e even among so-called experts. Uh, at the time, certainly Bear Stearns, everyone, almost everyone said we had no choice. I disagree, but that was the common consensus. 
TARP, there was a debate about exactly what might be done with the money. But if you had been in charge, dream for a minute, what would you have done differently in those checkpoints? Well, that's a good uh, that's, that's that's a good question. I think the the key in all these situations is that you want creditors to face losses. Uh, maybe not huge losses. Maybe not uh, certainly not losses that will be catastrophic that have big spillover effects to the rest of the economy. And, and you would like them to know what their losses are up front yeah. rather than have to you know worry about the uncertainty. For example, Lehman is still not entirely clear what people are going to get out. It looks uh, like about yeah, 20 cents on the dollar. Right, but it takes you three years to get to yeah, that that's understanding. Um, and um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think, as, as you alluded, some losses for the credit for the creditors of Bear Stearns would probably have been a good idea. Not saying that would have nipped this thing in the bud, but it would have sent the right signal people to slow down. Uh, and certainly in, in the TARP and post-TARP bailouts, and of course there's more programs, there's also all the guarantees provided by the FDIC, and there's all the um, asset support um, actions taken by the Federal Reserve yeah. one way or another. All the windows they opened. <laughs> exactly. Um, they, you need to have change of control. Um, you can't keep the same management running the banks when you're saving them in, in this fashion. Um, you need to change boards of directors. You need to change executives. When you've decided that it's systemic, of course, you can't necessarily change all management and all the banks. But I think that that's something of a, of a smokescreen. And really, at the, at the biggest banks, they should have had change of management, change of board of directors. Whether you could have had creditors take a hit in fall, late fall, early spring, 2008, early spring, 2009, that is debatable. And I think that's the danger going forward, that you find yourself again in a situation where well-informed people believe that there's a choice between global calamity and unsavory bailout. Yeah, yeah that's the... Uh, that reminds me of this uh, moment in the crisis when uh, I think Paulson and I forget maybe Geithner came to George Bush and said uh, the second and said, you know, we have to bail out AIG and Bush supposedly said, uh, well, you know, it's regrettable, but I, I accept your point. We have to do it. He said, how do we get to this point? How yeah. do we get to a world where that's our choice? Our choice is global calamity or unsavory. He didn't phrase it that way. You said a lot, a lot better, but. It, that's a very unsavory choice, and yeah. obviously you don't you want to avoid having to make that choice. And of course, faced with that choice, we policymakers almost always choose uh, unsavory uh, bailouts of of cronies, which is, I think, really destroying uh, perceptions, uh, and correctly so, of of the fairness of the system. Yes, absolutely. Well, it, it's the unsavory bailout is one thing, and but as you say, it's the cronies, it's the people who are very highly connected, uh, for example, to to the president of the New York Fed, um, Mr. Geithner, people he socialized with, people with whom he was on board, and, and people who he, of course, knew well and, and spent a long time on the phone with in early 2009. Now, that's a, a perception problem for sure, but the reality yeah. is, also, is also pretty bleak in, in, in modern American uh, context. And, and, you know, the, the criticism of, of banks, you look back historically, look at the... Um, you know, various waves of, of critiques that we've had. Um, sometimes people who criticize the big banks for their actions at the, at the time are called populists. A lot of times when you look at the history books, they're the ones who look like the sensible people who were just calling for restraint and responsibility. So, you know, one of the views of this uh, 
30-year, whatever you want to call it, um, period of, of banks' ascendancy and political influence, which led to this uh, either deregulation or lack of regulation and I think equally importantly, uh, a willingness of the government to intervene on their behalf, uh, which is why I, I refuse to accept the standard argument you hear sometimes that this was a triumph of right-wing ideology. So, you know, so Alan Greenspan gets, gets blamed for this because he wouldn't regulate derivatives. Well, that's true. He wouldn't. But he also was eager to bail out creditors in the Mexican crisis. He was eager to keep too big to fail on the books because he felt that enhanced the power of the Fed in my opinion. He was eager to manipulate interest rates and he was eager to orchestrate a rescue of long-term capital management. So he's not a free market ideologue unless it was useful to his – to the cronies. It's just a bizarre um, myopia to me or blindness to call that free market. It's not. I, I, I agree. Um, it's it's uh, well, it's, it was known as the Greenspan put for for a reason. Yeah. It's funny uh, or interesting that Greenspan has an essay from I think nineteen late nineteen sixties uh, when he was uh, something of, of an advocate of the gold standard. Yes, where he um, I think lays out. I mean, I, I'm I'm not a, so much a gold standard enthusiast uh, as he was then, but it, the point he makes there that the when you have um, unconditional support available from a central bank and you use it which you can do under a fiat money system more readily than you can under the gold standard. And this, of course, was Brandeis's point uh, in, in the original Federal Reserve debate. Um, but when you have that power, that is a form of, of, of what some people call statism. And you are putting power in the hands of the state. Now, I, I am a very cynical person. I think everyone is out <laughs> pursuing their own interests. I don't think Strange that there are, you know idealistic people running the state. There's a bunch of guys who have some friends and they're trying to help 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 themselves and, and they think that perhaps they think this is good for the economy. I don't know. But it, for sure, w w Greenspan had a point there that the kinds of actions that he later engaged in are favoring a relatively few people and, and the benefits are not shared more broadly. This is not a good model uh, of economic development. We know that from seeing lots of statist systems uh, around the world, but Greenspan proves that, that that, that same philosophy can fail spectacularly even in the United States. Now, you mentioned the opportunity we could have had to remove management. Uh, one view says, well, a lot of management was removed. Uh, Jimmy Kane at Bear Stearns lost his job. Richard Fold at Lehman, Lehman lost his job. Angela Mozillo at Countrywide lost his job. Uh, a lot of people did get removed by something like market forces. And then the question would be, if, if you wanted to do that more systematically, uh, what would be the mechanism and we've talked briefly on the program in the past about the FDIC Improvement Act, what's called FDICIA of 1991, which at the time was supposedly uh, a way of avoiding this moral hazard, too big to fail problem. And it was never used uh, or very little used in this past crisis. Do you think it could have been used? Uh, what mechanisms might have been available for more punitive uh, – in, in interventions with, with management? Well, first of all, what I'm suggesting is not punitive. I'm suggesting sensible <laughs> managerial procedure. If you buy a company, a troubled company, your private equity fund, for sure you do not keep the CEO in place. I never heard of that. Yeah. You fire the guy. Uh, secondly, um, perhaps they could have used that legal authority, perhaps not. But tell me this. What's the legal authority that allows the U.S. government to fire the CEO of General Motors? There is none. Yeah. And Rick Wagoner was gone. I mean, it's, it's clear. And, and, you know, this is how the world operates. If you would like us to save General Motors, you'd like us to help provide um, bankruptcy financing, Mr. Wagoner has to go. 
And, and you can call us 9 o'clock tomorrow morning and tell us which way you're going to go on that, but that's a decision to be made by the board of directors. So, you know, the, the guy who saves the day, the person who brings the money to the deal, gets to choose management. That's nothing about, you know, legal practice or American market philosophy or anything like that. That's the way the world works. And if you keep the guys in when you're bailing them out and, you, and you're saving everything about them, including, by the way, all their bonuses uh, and so on, because, you know, you're not going through any kind of restructuring on, on that, you know, you, 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 that's, that's an idiotic approach to, to, to any kind of administration. And I'm talking about private sector administration as well as public sector administration. So one of the fundamental issues here, and just for those who have not been um, following our, our podcasts on this, the reason I keep emphasizing creditor rescue is the creditors, the people who either lent money or held the bonds of these of these banks or, or uh, financial institutions, they have no upside. They only have the downside of bankruptcy. And if you take away that downside, um, there's nobody left to monitor prudence and to to stop recklessness with borrowed money, which is how these firms get so large and how they take such risky bets. So if you tell the people who finance those bets that they will never lose their money, not even take a little bit of a haircut, take 80 cents on the dollar, 90 cents on the dollar, if in fact the government intervenes when there's private negotiations going on about those reductions in money received and the government overrides them, which they did, you basically have destroyed the main force for prudence in the economy. Now, the 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 Counterpoint to that, in the Bear Stearns case, for example, or in the current European mess that, that uh, we're in the middle of right now, is that, well, these, these banks are so interconnected. If we, if we let creditors take losses, then their creditors in turn will have to take losses and this whole thing will have this incredible meltdown. And what's the evidence for that? Let's take – Greece because it's it's in the news or Italy. We know that Greece has promised a lot of money to foreign banks, uh, a lot of French banks, some American banks I assume. What's the evidence that if Greece is unable to pay them, there will be catastrophic consequences rather than just some banks that made decisions will lose some money? Do we have any measures of that that are objective? That's a good question. No, I think is is the uh, the answer. At least not. Inf- I mean, the information exists, but it's proprietary and supervisory information, so I, d- I don't have uh, access to it. Uh, Richard Fisher had a good speech on this, the president of the, the Dallas Fed, uh, I think it was last week, saying that all this talk of contagion is, is really a cover uh, for getting bailouts. And Sheila Baer said that in her um, exit interview with the New York Times. She said, that, you know, if I heard once, you must do this, that, or the other to save, to prevent the world from collapsing, I must have heard it a thousand times. So <laughs> clearly, it would be very good if there were more public information, better independent assessment of, of what are the contagion risks. And of course, you should be preventing such risks from building up in, in various ways. doesn't mean you can always necessarily prevent something serious from happening, but you should be trying to preclude those, um, th- those possibilities, and that is absolutely not the focus. And by the way, an important way to preclude it is, in the, Europe, in the case of your European example, uh, if the European banks had more capital, if they were financed with more equity and less debt, that would be a big buffer Correct. against contagion. Right. But they don't need a big buffer because it's safe. <laughs> well, absolutely. But look, this is, this is a longer-standing problem in the last few years. The, if you look at the amount of capital in banking systems, the amount of equity financing, for example, in the United States, but not only the United States, um, it, it's been going down for over 100 years. Yeah. Maybe 150 you have some years. nice charts in the book on that, if I remember. Right. So it, it, it's, it's actually, you know, frankly, it's the advent of central banking that did that. 
the, the, the creation of a lender of last resort. When Walter Badgett argued, editor of The Economist of all people, a laissez-faire proponent, when he argued for a lender of last resort function, he was arguing for the beginning of really serious moral hazard. Yeah, of course, he, he, he argued that that lender of last resort should only be able to play that role for solvent banks that had a liquidity problem. The problem is, is that that's, subju- that's hard to measure, <laughs> and the political incentives there are never going to be – they're going to be the same political incentives that say, well, we have to save the world. You have to save the world. You have to give us a lot of money. <laughs> yes, and of course, the, the key thing – I mean, this is not so much critique of Badger because he was still on the gold standard – is once you have a fiat money system and you can inflate – Worse, then liquidity yeah. and solvency become uh, much more overlapping concepts. So if we go back to the first sort of canonical example of this uh, moral hazard problem and creditor rescue, we go back to continental Illinois, which in 1984 was the seventh largest bank in the United States. And we're told at the time uh, that they were too big to fail and that their creditors had to be rescued, and they were. But a recent study – or not a recent, but other studies of that, looking back at it, once we had that transparency, discovered, well, actually not much would have happened if if, uh, if there had been uh, a bankruptcy proceeding in terms of other domino effects on other institutions. And you know, when we trace that history, that's the first event. Uh, when people mention the other examples of where moral hazard was created, they talk about the long-term capital uh, management rescue – really wasn't much of a rescue. The Fed orchestrated it, but it was a privately financed rescue. The creditors got together, and uh, it was important because it, the Fed showed they were concerned about a hedge fund, which was a bizarre um, uh, intervention for the Fed. But I, there are not that many interventions on this. Uh, it looks like uh, where this moral hazard problem was created. What, what those stories forget, and I particularly want to ask you about this, is other types of creditor rescues that aren't just rescuing a bank – and the most dramatic example for me was the 1995 Mexico bailout where the government guaranteed uh, Mexican loans so that Mexico could get back into credit markets and, and avoid a default. That default was mainly a rescue of the banks that had lent Mexico money, not a rescue of Mexico. And so that was a signal to – again, to creditors, to lenders and, and issuers of bonds that the government would step in. And of course, that was followed by a bunch of IMF rescues in the late 90s. And I want you to talk about those. Similarly, you know, the focus is always in those cases on the imposition of various restrictions on the part of the borrowing countries that, that go to the IMF. But what often I think has been totally ignored and I've just started to realize this is that the people who funded that irresponsibility got off scot-free. Yes, to some degree, although I have to say I was working with the private sector in the late 1990s, and we lost money on Indonesia. <laughs> so uh, there were ways uh, to, to certainly lose in those situations. And, and also on emerging markets, I mean, I, I, I take your point. I think it's a good one that there, there is sometimes moral hazard, and the IMF has, has played some role there. But on the other hand, you can lose your money um, in emerging markets. Emerging markets have somewhat routine debt restructurings, actually. Um, the, the bigger moral hazard problem the bigger misperception is around these so-called safe assets, the, the Eurozone, Western Europe, where people believed, not particularly because of the IMF, more because of the, the history and, and the nature of what they thought were the fiscal accounts and, and, the, and the central banking arrangements, and the fact that it was a reserve currency. They felt that this was absolutely a sure bet, couldn't lose their money. That's when you really get, uh, really get things going badly wrong. Going back to the IMF case, though, when you talk about debt restructuring, uh, if I had, if I was a, ba- a private investment bank that had lent uh, 
a, a lot of money to a emerging country, and the IMF intervened with a, with new loans to prevent uh, bankruptcy, which they did a few times in the late 1990s. Are you suggesting that those private firms uh, took a hit? Well, as I said, it depends on the, the exact form of, of your uh, exposure. Uh, if you were um, – it's certainly if you lent to a Korean corporate sector, uh, there was debt restructuring that I'm aware of. I think people who uh, had holding commercial paper entities in corporates also um, certainly lost in present value terms. But the, you're right that the IMF definitely uh, provided assistance. And actually, <coughs> remember that the countries do not go bankrupt. And, and actually, Ann Krieger had a very good idea that countries should be, should be able to go bankrupt. In other words, restructure Same their debt. Same point, yeah. In a bankruptcy procedure, she was put into the IMF as first deputy managing director by the Bush administration, George W. Bush. And then they backed away from the idea, I think, because the bankers, when they looked at the details, didn't like it. Yeah. Because they like <laughs> this kind of vague, open moral hazard. Yeah, strangely enough. So I think Ann Krieger had exactly the right idea, and that's what we, we should have bankruptcy for everyone. We should have bankruptcy for everyone and for all loans should be able to go through bankruptcy. I think, frankly, that if, if um, you could put mortgages through bankruptcy in the United States, we'd be a much – so all consumer uh, debts can go through bankruptcy, as opposed to right now, the situation where you can't, in many states, most states, you can't uh, restructure home loans through a bankruptcy-type proceeding. I think our, our situation would be much better. I think, what, one of the, honestly, one of the biggest and most important set of innovations at the beginning of the American Republic was making it easier to go bankrupt, particularly for corporate structures. We have the best co- corporate bankruptcy procedures in the world, arguably, or some of the best. And, and um, going bankrupt doesn't slow down the non-financial sector very much. They, you, they, you restructure your debts and you, and you come out, uh, if you have a good business model, you can come out of that just fine. We have problems for, with individuals on this dimension, and obviously for countries, it's a big mess. But I think the for people who haven't thought about bankruptcy, which which was includes me for a long time, it it's really a, it's simply a way to divvy up what's left when there isn't enough to go around. That that's a fact, right? If you if you've lived beyond your means and it's over and you can't keep borrowing, you've got a you've made promises. You have some assets usually sometimes, and the question is who gets how much of what's left. And bankruptcy is, is, is simply an orderly process by which that can happen, uh, and that's why it's valuable. Right, but remember, there's two kinds of bankruptcy. There's liquidation, which is exactly what you described, and there is uh, restructuring, we, we call it Chapter 11. The idea being that the creditors, I mean, to, to heck with the shareholders, they're, they're gone, <laughs> they're wiped out, right? You've right. gone bankrupt. And the land management is presumably changed. But from a creditor perspective, you may be better off having this firm run as a going concern Right. And going on to make profits in which you will share as, as the equity holder now. So I think this is a very profound uh, part of the American system. Some other countries insist on liquidation. It doesn't matter what your future looks like. You overborrowed now. We're shutting you down. And we know that in many instances you lose a lot of value when you force that as a solution. In, in a bankruptcy procedure, there is a judge who is a specialist or hopefully a specialist on these matters. And people make the case, creditors make the case, we want our cash or we want it to continue in this form. And there are procedures, well-specified procedures, not inexpensive procedures, I would say, but well-specified procedures for sorting out who gets what and, and whether this is going to continue. That's a, a, exactly what you should have for countries and, I, I would suggest, for, for individuals, without exception for the nature of their debt. And we certainly wouldn't argue you should liquidate a country. Greece, by virtue of its irresponsibility, is now merged with Yugoslavia. 
that would be a not the right. Well, the U.S. used to send in the Marines uh, <laughs> to various countries. We, we don't do that anymore, and, and I think that's probably a good idea. Yeah, well, we don't send the Marines in for that reason. Definitely a step in the right direction. But there is uh, – there's an interesting contrast, which I don't understand, and maybe you can help me understand it. Uh, we mentioned Lehman Brothers earlier. Lehman Brothers has been now an ongoing court case for about th- – bankruptcy court case for about three years. Uh, it hasn't caused the end of the world, but it has meant that for three years, the people who were expecting something aren't sure of how much they're going to get, and they haven't actually gotten it. So they're getting closer, supposedly. There's something like $365 billion of claims on Lehman. They have about $65 billion worth of assets, so people are going to get about a sixth, roughly, of what they were hoping or expecting to get, something close to $0.20 cents, uh, on the dollar. But it's taken a long time. But FDIC resolution of financial institutions is very quick and only a handful of financial institutions in the 2008 crisis were uh, were put through FDIC resolution, which when they did, it, it happened quickly and those banks got lots of um, – uh, took a big – creditors to those institutions took a big haircut and that was just – that was good. It taught them a lesson. Why are they so different? Do you know? Well, Lehman, it was very complex. It's complicated, lot, yeah. Yeah, with a lot of, and, and this is partly that derivative, it's also about the legal structures. It was also cross-border. And we don't have any good mechanisms, either through private contracts and, and private uh, dispute resolution or through public mechanisms, for dealing with cross-border collapses. So the FDIC cases you cited, uh, I believe, uh, with that exception, were primarily domestic U.S. financial institutions. Uh, and the second thing is that if you're, if you're a, a broker-dealer in particular, uh, I mean, there's a problem for financial sector in general, but broker dealers in particular. When you when you go out of business, when people won't f- fund you anymore, uh, most of the value is destroyed. If you're talking about a bank, a brick and mortar bank with customers and a deposit base and so on, those are there are assets there that you can sell. Actually, quite 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 um, easy to sell assets, customers in in many customer business in many parts of the country. So. Um, Lehman represents a particular form of of difficulty, and I think we should be aware of that going forward. So if you just say, let's do FDIC resolution for Lehman, which is the plan under Dodd-Frank, personally, I don't think that would work very well. So let's talk about where we are now and going forward. Uh, In your book, you advocate one one style of solution to the problem, which is to make banks smaller. Uh, How would you describe that, and how, how would that work? So we suggest, and, 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 and I would emphasize this is not the only thing we want. We think it's an, in addition to pretty much all the other sensible proposals out there to, to, to deal with the problems that we've, we've been talking about um, so far. We suggest that you have a hard size cap on the size of banks relative to the economy. So let's say no bank can have total assets, not any kind of risk-adjusted funny business, but total assets cannot be more than 4% of, of GDP. And if you want to be an investment-type bank, which you might think is somewhat more risky uh, than a vanilla retail bank, perhaps we'll make that 2% of GDP as, as a cap. And uh, this is uh, just a limit that, that we would impose. This would roll the banks back to where they were, by the way, in the mid to late 1990s, when our banks were just fine and they were globally competitive and, and so on. So we're trying to do away with, with, with the bulk that they've acquired, um, or the obesity, as Richard Fisher calls it, um, as the Dallas uh, Fed president again. He says the banks have become obese with no social benefits or, or, or private gain. And, and the banks, in our, under our scheme, the banks would have to find ways to comply with it. And, and they would have a fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders to do this. And it would be very much akin to some of the breakups we've seen um, in the antitrust uh, world. For example, Standard Oil. 
broken up in 1911 into 35 or 36 pieces, most of which went on to make a lot of money and it turned out to be a great proposition to the shareholders. How would you enforce that? How, how would it – I mean it's an interesting idea, which I have to confess I'm somewhat sympathetic to. I would prefer stop stopping the, the creditor rescues, which I think would make banks smaller that in itself. Then the political question is, is that credible? Is that a, poss- a real threat? But if we take your solution – how would it possibly be in, how could it possibly be enforced slash implemented how would you if you broke them up to start with if you took a, a large uh, a city group which is the most obvious example which is enormous bloated obese whatever you want to call it and you said okay you got to split it up how would you tell them how to split it up and once they split it up and they started to grow again how would you stop them well i'm not going to tell them how to split it up that's their business uh, they have they have to sort it out and their shoulders need to be happy, otherwise they'll, they'll get fired. Um, if they grow up to the cap, then they have to find ways to spin off um, divisions or activities or, or, again, whatever makes sense from, from a business point of view. We're, we're just setting the cap, and uh, th- there has been, by the way, a cap in the law for a long time. The Regal Neal Act, 1995, says that no bank can have more than 10% of total retail deposits. Now, 10% is much lower than you would think necessary for antitrust reasons. It's a, this is a macro prudential, you know, don't put too many eggs in one basket kind of reasoning. The problem with the 10% cap was twofold. First of all, um, you don't want it to be shared retail deposits because um, all, the, all the action in bank obesity is in wholesale funding. Yeah. Um, and you don't actually want it to be share of total liabilities because we know that in big bubbles, like in the Japan bubble of the 80s, for example, uh, financial liabilities can go up in a big way relative to GDP. Uh, the second problem with the 1995 uh, cap, of course, was that it wasn't enforced. Um, and people found various ways uh, around it. And, and um, you know, to that, I'd say we have to have continual, uh, continual scrutiny and, and monitoring this by, by independent people. But all of this, by the way, is entirely with a view to achieving your goal. Your goal is the right goal. No more bailouts for anybody. But I fear that for that to be time consistent, for it to be a credible commitment, yeah. We need to do things to make the probability of failure less and to make the impact of failure less and to make it so that when they fail, they're not as big and they're not as connected and so on and so forth. So I want a lot of things, but only and entirely to meet your goal. Um, and I do think the size, the, thing about, the good thing about the size restriction compared to, let's say, capital requirements is the size restriction is very easy for people to understand. A lot of people get confused about capital requirements. Many people, many people writing for top newspapers actually confuse capital, which is a liability, with reserves, which are assets for the banks. So it's very hard to make progress Ex- yeah, when explain, you can't get, we can't even get the New York Times to get this right. The, explain um, that difference because I think when we, uh, in my interview with uh, uh, Admondi out at Stanford, that was her point, is that there's this view that somehow assets are being tied up and not being available when you have capital requirements, and that's not true. So what's the distinction between reserves and, and capital? Well, capital is just another way of saying equity. And maybe we should, all, we should just say equity. So to what extent is your bank financed with equity versus debt? And if you go back to the 19th century, most American banks were financed with 30 40 50% equity, and, 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 the, and the rest was, was borrowed money. So that's a big buffer against losses. It means that you can suffer large hit on various kinds of loans, and you're still solvent. You, you're still, um, you, the shareholders, of course, you can are sell, upset. No, but that's, the, that's part of their deal, that they exactly. get the upside and they sometimes take the downside, and that's why you want people to be 
prudently when exactly. they take risks. Exactly. So in this sense, shareholder equity is the buffer between uh, the bank and and going going bankrupt and having losses uh, for the for the um, for, for the debt holders for the le- people who've lent to the bank. Reserves, on the other hand, are uh, cash. In, in the in the good old days of American banking, of course, your number one reserve was gold and silver coins, so called specie. And you know, you either had enough coin in hand or you didn't, and then that was uh, obviously something that that was uh, also associated with with bank runs and lots of panics. Um, now it, it is um, cash or near cash or assets that you can sell uh, readily. And of course, the problem many banks had was they they thought they were holding things that were liquid, meaning you could sell them for a ready price. And and when markets go down, a lot of things that previously were liquid turn out to be very illiquid, like various kinds of mortgage-backed securities or Greek government debt. Yeah. So one of the things that depresses me about the cur- – there are many things <clears throat> obviously that depress me about the current situation, but one of them is the failure to learn any lessons that we might be obviously – you think we obviously would have learned. Uh, we went through a large financial uh, bit of legislation to, so- to allegedly fix this problem, which was Dodd-Frank, and you wrote recently that it did – we can debate about what, what it did that was good or bad. But one of the things that, of course, I focus on is is too big to fail, and you argue that it did nothing for that. Why? What what it was in, What is in Dodd-Frank? Uh, to reduce this uh, creditor rescue problem, and why do you think it's not sufficient? Well, the proponents of Dodd-Frank would say there's, there's quite a few things trying to do with that. I think really it comes down to the resolution authority. So they're given the FDIC the ability to take over and resolve, meaning shut down, liquidate. Um, remove management. And do lots of things, including removing management. They have that authority now for basically any financial institution in the United States. The problem is they don't have a cross-border the fundamental problem, to my, in my view, is they don't have a cross-border resolution authority. U.S. Congress can't give you an authority to close things down outside the United States. There has to be either an intergovernmental agreement or some sort of binding private contract. Those things don't exist. They're not going to exist. The G20 is not going to make any progress on this issue ever, in, in my assessment, and that's based on talking to a lot of people who are close to that process from, from different countries. So if you can't take down... So then you have, you know, what, what kind of problems are we going to face? Well, if we see MF Global... You just let them go. There's no reason to do resolution there. You let them go bankrupt, sort it out with their creditors. That's fine. CIT Group failed in the fall of 2009. They were a bit bigger than an MF Global. They weren't a broker-dealer. They were a specialized lender to small and medium-sized business. They claimed they wanted a bailout, and I believe Sheila Baer was the one who was really instrumental in turning them down. Again, they went bankrupt. Not a big deal. No one can show you big effects from that. So that was MF Global, $40 billion. Um, CIT Group, $80 billion. When you, you put to people, uh, and, I, and I do this a lot, I ask people in private sector and public sector, what if we have a problem in, say, Goldman Sachs, which is $800, $900 billion balance sheet? Um, or, if you prefer Bank of America, City, J.P. Morgan Chase, that's up around the $2 trillion, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase up around $2.5 trillion in, in balance sheet. Um, would you just let them go? No, no, they say we couldn't possibly do that. Well, if you have, a, if you try to resolve them, how are you going to handle the cross-border resolution issues? Oh, um, not sure, but we'll sort that out on on the day. Well, I guess you know, my answer to that is no, you won't. And Lehman, in Lehman, they didn't. In Lehman, there was a big fight as soon as it went bankrupt uh, under UK law. It was illegal to operate Lehman uh, on the Monday after it had gone bankrupt in the US on the on the Sunday. Like illegal, as in you can go to jail for doing this. So how are you going to get over that? You can't just wish these things away. And that 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 is somewhere between irresponsibility. And, and outright mendacity. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, so, in the current mess in Europe, uh, you know, you confessed earlier that, and I think this is a huge part of the problem, 
that we don't have a good measure of how much potential contagion there is if, say, Greece couldn't honor its obligations and French banks uh, caught a cold and we don't know who – started sneezing. We don't know who else would catch a cold uh, because we don't know what these linkages are. Wouldn't be a good place to start be some a little more transparency on those kind of things? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, while we are questioning everything, we should be questioning the extent to which banks are allowed to keep um, a lot of their various exposures uh, secret. Uh, because if it's secret information shared only with the regulator and the regulator is captured, that's uh, worse than worthless. Actually, that's part of the capture mechanism. So, and, and none of the stress tests that have been published by anyone, including the ones the U.S. did in, in 2000, uh, 2009, 2010, and the ones the Europeans did 2010, 2011, none of these stress tests are really worth anything from this perspective. None of them disclose enough detailed information to really be able to, to map out yeah. under various scenarios the true contagion. Yeah, they, they were kind of like a pass-fail. You know, you got you, you to pee. Or an, you know, everybody got a P, got a pass, a pass, pass without it? much, without much detail. Well, did I was I close to an F or was I <laughs> was it an A plus? Well, you passed. That's all we want. You know, we just everybody should be confident. Let's move along. Come on, keep going. Look, that, that's the way to communicate. What they were doing there was communicating. In the U.S. case, they were communicating that the government stands behind these banks, uh, and and that's the nature. They were reaffirming the implicit guarantee. Uh, which calms the market short term, but of course only contributes to the moral hazard problems going forward. The problem in Europe is when they try to communicate that the state stands behind these banks, the next question in the market's uh, minds was, that's good, but who stands behind the state? Yeah. We just need a bailout from, Mar- from Mars or Jupiter. <laughs> if we could just get the Martian central bank involved in this case, I think we'd be okay. Well, you know, it's funny when you put it that way, but of course – what it's really about is the European Central Bank bailing everyone out. That's what they're lobbying for. European Central Bank is not from Mars. It's from Frankfurt. But <laughs> it doesn't belong to any national government. It, yeah. it, it is run by this, well, you know, all the countries together, but with a huge influence of the Germans and, and the Bundesbank. And, and what everyone is lobbying for and all the pleading and all the, you know, articles you see about contagion risk and so on and so forth is basically saying we want the ECB to give us lots of money. And so I take you back again to the founding of the Fed, and I take you back to Walter Badgett, and I ask you the question, um, what's the origin of modern moral hazard? Isn't it inherent to some degree in central banking? That's why we have to get rid of the Fed, because not only <laughs> – I'm not laughing. Not only does it have that problem because it's called the lender of last resort, the governance restrictions on it in Europe obviously are a problem, but even in the United States – um, it's remarkable that we have this institution that has so little accountability. And I think the – I mean just my favorite example of this, maybe you understand, you know more about this than I do, but I find it remarkable that I know nothing about it. The Fed in, 19, in 2008 says to make sure that, that the creditors of Bear Stearns don't lose any money, we're going to guarantee all of its toxic assets, $29 billion, and eventually it was 32 to make sure that J.P. Morgan Chase is willing to buy them. At the time, we were told one, that we had, they had no choice. We had no choice. Had to do it with no evidence, zero evidence for that. This is, an, again, a, an institution that has very little direct accountability in a democracy. It's a bizarre situation. But at the time, we were told, oh, you know, these assets are just hard to value. We don't know what they really are worth. They could – we could make a profit on it, which, of course, was, a, I think, an outright – I don't know if it was a lie, but it turned out, I think, not to be true. But here's the puzzle. Did, have we made a profit on it? Is it is – it, how hard is it right now to find out – what the financial value, just the book value of those assets that the Fed has on its balance sheets, I have no idea. 
and I'm in the top half of a percent of informed people on this. It's it's a secret, essentially a secret. It may be literally public information, but isn't it strange that we don't know the answer to that? It's our money. <laughs> well, I think that that's that's a, a very important symbol and example of, of the problems we're talking about. But but seriously, uh, Russ, I, th- I think the debate should be about central banking, and the sh- debate has to be therefore about. Do you want a fiat money system or do you want to go back to something like the gold standard? We need to have a realistic and open discussion on both sides. And if you end up siding, as I do, not with the gold standard, because when you look at the detailed history, there are a lot of problems with how it actually operated, and the moral hazard problems and the bailouts and the cronies and so on and so forth have been with us for a very long time, I can assure you. Then you come to the issue of what's the governance of the central bank, which is what you're going to, right? So to what extent should you run central bank in the way it's been run over the past 100 years or the, or the past 30 years? Or do we need a much different approach to central banking with a lot more transparency, a lot more cards on the table, a lot more accountability? And, and, and that, of course, is, is a very, very shocking notion to, to, uh, to us, to, to people in, in the New York Fed, for example, or, or in the European Central Bank. But I, I would point out that thinking about central banking and how central banks should operate changes with great regularity. In fact, if you look over the last 100, 100 years, about every decade and a half, we've had a big shift in thinking about how exactly the central bank should operate. So my point is, it's, it's time time for another big shift. Yeah, it's a, it's, that's, a, that's a good observation. Uh, I'm going to quote you a uh, nice quote from the book, though, that I think is a, is a bit um, sobering. You say, more important, solutions that depend on smarter, better regulatory supervision and corrective action ignore the political constraints on regulation and the political power of the large banks. So given that, I, I lean toward uh, more dramatic zero-one solutions rather than continuous solutions, which is why I think getting rid of the Fed or tr- a radical change, the gold standard would, I think, be an enormous improvement. Of course it's flawed. Of course it had problems. You got to compare it to the, 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 the alternatives and that, that's the, the challenging question and, and where those alternatives are headed right now. And I don't think um, – I don't think we're headed toward a very good place. And worse, uh, as I've argued before, there are about uh, probably at least 100 economists in the world, in the United States, who think that they're one of the top 10 economists in, in macroeconomics. And there's more than 100 probably think they're in the top 10. And they think that they could be the chair of the Fed. And so the, the, the wisest economists on this topic are a little bit compromised because – it's not in their interest to talk about abolishing the Fed or doing something dramatic or at least reining it in. They just say, well, we do it. We should do it better. And better is not is – not, there's no evidence we can do it better. That's right. I think it's uh, James Grant who rather uh, humorously says we replace the gold standard with the PhD standard. <laughs> and and it, it is somewhat – in terms of results, it, 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 it is somewhat um, disappointing. Oh, that's an awesome line. Oh, that's very good. What about um, – while we're being depressing right now, um, you've written a little bit about looting, the, the phenomenon that when we're in a world of chaotic uh, revisions and, and a state where there's a lot of government intervention and a lot of chaos that executives can take advantage of in these financial institutions. you want to say something about that and, and what evidence we have on it? Well, this is a, a literature that's really more focused on uh, emerging markets, although George Akerlof uh, and Paul Roma have a nice article yeah. uh, looking at the, a lot of U.S. cases. And, and basically, the, the, the point is that w- when you have confusion, when things are going down and everyone has a short 
time horizon. The instinct is is to um, grab the money and run. And there are lots of ways to do that, particularly if you're in bed with the government, particularly if you can get all kinds of, of special favors. And actually, the, there are people in, in some emerging market price situations who have amassed fortunes uh, doing this. There, you can buy assets at five sales prices from other people and, and so on and so forth. So asset, you can call it asset stripping, you can call it looting. It, it's, it's a good reason not, it's a good reason to try and have price stability and to try and avoid massive financial uh, disruptions. It, the, these things absolutely um, play into the hands of a, a relatively small set of people who are, who are doing incredibly well to start with. Well, let's close with um, the current political climate. We have people on the right in the Tea Party movement who are very upset about the rescues and the bailouts and this um, what I call symbiotic relationship between uh, Wall Street and Washington. And we have people on the left in the Occupy Wall Street movement. Um, they, those two groups see the world very similarly and extremely differently, and that would be true of you, you and I as well. We, we agree on so much. Is there a chance uh, that there might be some – Real consensus from both left and right about how to fix this, and uh, where might you see that heading? As you mentioned, there's been these revisions and attitudes toward the financial system. They, there's a cycle of some kind. Why don't you speculate a little bit about where we might be going and what might actually happen? Well, you, you look, you're absolutely right that there's a convergence of views. It's not a, The views we've been discussing are not left or right views or central views. They're, they're everywhere. Uh, they're, they are views of people who are, who've learned some hard lessons. And, and I think, though, that given what we've seen in the past few years, just as n- only Nixon could go to China, only the right can fix the bank. If, if the left, if, if somebody runs for office, the presidency, for example, on, on the campaign of, of saying uh, too big to fail banks are just too big, the response can be, oh, here comes some sort of communist or socialist. But what we see now on the right is, is people like, well, actually, John Huntsman taking the lead. John Huntsman had a great uh, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal a few weeks ago saying exactly that. Too big to fail is simply too big. And when you look at the substance that he's putting out, he's talking about exactly the kinds of ideas that you and I have been kicking around today. Uh, Rick Perry has followed suit. Newt Gingrich came out, I think it was last week, and said something very similar. If you are competing for the presidential nomination right now within the Republican Party, it's quite appealing to go after Mitt Romney as the frontrunner with this issue because Mr. Romney can't respond, presumably, well, it's very hard for him to respond because he's already taken so much money from the big banks. And he supported the bailout, uh, the TARP, for example. He said it was necessary, uh, had to be done. Um, so he's he's a little bit he's a little bit tainted. Of course, every uh, I call it the Willie Sutton theory of fundraising. You know, they asked Willie Sutton why he robbed banks. He said, "Well, that's where the money is." And President Obama, who is on paper a, a leftish progressive Democrat. Um, gets a lot of money from the financial sector because there's a lot of money there. So he talks the populist game and takes the money anyway. And I think the Republicans, I worry, will do the same. Uh, it will be back to business as usual. Maybe the European crisis will uh, unfortunately be so catastrophic that we'll have to do something about it. I think people rarely change their minds because of arguments or discussions like this one or because they read somebody's book or an article. You change your mind because you're overtaken by events and you're slapped around by the, by, by the world economy and the banks behave in, in such an egregiously bad, stupid way that eventually you, you get it. And at that point when you start to realize something needs to be done differently, then you look around for ideas and you look for ideas that have been, that have been chewed over, that have, that have really 
been tested and been challenged from different perspectives. You say, okay, so here's some ideas that actually make sense, but we need to grab them fast because this boat is sinking unless we do the right thing here. And that's what we're trying to do. And that's what I'm trying to do is try and move the policy consensus, get people like you and, and, and other people from all across the political spectrum thinking along these lines because an opportunity will come. Nothing to do with me. Uh, just th- these banks are unstable structures. They have the incentive to leverage up massively, take a lot of risk. They get the cash on the upside. Somebody else worries about the downside. They will go out and do it again. The question is, who will be in charge and are they ready to better deal with it next time? Than, than they were in 2008, 2009. My guest today has been Simon Johnson. Simon, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.